You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So again, in the spirit of a number of you probably being our guests here this morning, or maybe you have been in and out the last... uh, handful of Sundays as we've launched into Advent Conspiracy. Um, Some of you might be asking, what is that? And that's okay. Um, We have a brochure that's out on our information counter in the lobby that we would encourage you to pick up because this concisely but comprehensively explains what is Advent Conspiracy and how you can join us in being a part of this, Um, as well as from uh, our time last week, Um, we asked you to submit by text um, your ideas of how your family has either modified or changed traditions or even created new ones in order to um, gather the resources to help support and be a part of Advent Conspiracy. And a number of you um, wrote in about that, over 80 of you, and we typed up those responses, and those are on the back resource table for you as well. So if you need some ideas or just want to see how other families are participating in Advent Conspiracy, that's there for you. And finally... Um, Just one last time, we want to call your attention to the series that we recently ended, our sexuality series that preceded this current one that we're in. And a number of you texted in questions throughout the course of that series. And so the elders and I took a number of weeks to compile an answer to every single one of your questions. This is a 12-page document. You asked a lot of questions. But this is now available for you to pick up if you haven't already. And those are located on the back resource table as well. And a couple of caveats with that. Number one, your questions were very good questions. And some of them were multi-layered and nuanced and complicated. And so to form a bullet response to those was very, very challenging. And you may have more questions or just feel like they weren't answered as comprehensively as you might like. On there, we steer you to our resources that we have at brashears.net, as well as we refer you back to some sermons in the series that actually did address those questions. So where it's pertinent and relevant, that's there for you as well. So enough of that. We are in our final Sunday of a series on Advent Conspiracy. Because we have been participating in Advent Conspiracy now as a church family for over 10 years, which is very compelling and very exciting to me. We are one of the first adopters of this here in the metropolitan area. And over that course of time, we realize and appreciate that about this time every year, it's kind of a massive re-education focus for those of us who have been a part of it. And for a number of you, we're introducing it to you for the first time. And so by design this year, we decided to devote the entire month of November to talking about the values behind Advent Conspiracy. Why do we do this? And these values really are what we're called to be living out, not just at Christmas and around the holidays, but all the time as Jesus followers. And so finally, we end with this final value with Advent Conspiracy, and that is to love all, or to say it another way, to love everyone. Because if you were to summarize the Bible into two statements, they would be to love God and to love people. You just summarize the entire Bible. That's what the Bible is about, guiding us into right relationship with God and right relationship with others by loving him and loving one another. So, how do you do that? Easier said than done, case in point. 
As I was preparing for our time here this morning, I was reminded of something that happened to me several years in college, and it really was my first introduction to what has become one of my most favorite passages in the Bible, the very passage that we'll be looking at once again here this morning. So in college, my sophomore and junior year, I was a resident assistant and a hall director in the residential life system at Southern Oregon State down in Ashland, in the southern part of our state. And we were trained very comprehensively and then made responsible for a residence hall of usually around 120 men and women, 120 peers. And the fascinating thing about that whole experience was, as was true for me, was true for most of the 120 people who lived in those residence halls, it was their first time being away from mom and dad and living on their own. And so as an RA and a hall director, I had the unique opportunity to be a surrogate parent and a pastor to my peers in a number of situations. Because sometimes an RA or a hall director's role gets reduced to, oh, you know, you let people into their rooms who have lost their keys or you answer a question occasionally. Uh, Yeah, it was a whole lot more than that. I got some of my best training I was later to discover in later years as a pastor being an RA and a hall director. Because you did life with people. And by that, meaning you encountered all sorts of situations. I mean, let me paint a picture for you. So you have 120 people who, by and large, have never been out on their own. Now they're living away from mom and dad. And you now cram them into this residence hall. And our residence hall was co-ed, so it was men and women. And then we were supposed to be an alcohol-free campus, haha. Every Wednesday and every weekend, the alcohol flowed freely on our campus. And my job as an RA and a hall director got very interesting very quickly. Because when you have a residence hall of 120 inebriated people, life gets very interesting. There's nonstop drama. There's people sleeping with whoever and they don't know who they slept with the next morning. There's relational conflicts. There are fist fights. There are alcohol poisonings. There is drug use. There's just all sorts of stuff that takes place in a residence hall that is largely drunk. And so in one of those instances, one of my residents was about to get in a fist fight with a guy from another residence hall, not an uncommon occurrence. And so I was there, so I stepped into that as I had been trained to do and separated them. And my resident, we'll just call him Mike, Mike was drunk, took a swing at me, and thankfully he was drunk because he was really slow and his aim was bad, and so he missed me. But I broke them up, took his alcohol, and so he decided from that point on for the rest of the year he was going to dislike me because now I was his enemy. So he would go out of his way to mock me, to ridicule me, to gossip about me, and to make life just about as miserable as he could make it. And so when God's word calls us to love everybody, it means everybody. Not just the easy to people love like you and me, (laughs) most days, but the difficult people, the mics in your life and in mine. So how does that work? Well, there are lots of places we could go in God's word because God's word is practical and applicable and real, but we're going to go back to a passage that we started into a couple weeks ago. Romans chapter 12. And since we're going back to it again, I almost titled this sermon Romans 12. This time it's personal. (laughs) But the whole thing is personal because it's relational and it's practical. So we're going to return to Romans 12 
and camp out for a while on the part of that passage that we didn't do last time by design because I knew we'd be doing it this time. So if you have a Bible, please open to Romans chapter 12. Take out your tablet or your phone or however you get there and turn to that. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. As we always do, I will read it to you and then we're going to walk our way through it. And we'll start here at verse 9, the first part of it. Love must be sincere, Paul writes. And then he goes on to say this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's go back to the beginning here. And we visited this verse a couple weeks ago, so we're not going to spend too much time on it, but just as a reset for where we're going, love must be sincere. Okay? So really what he's saying here is that we are to love other people with sincerity and devotion, meaning you can't fake your way through this. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be real. In fact, genuine love is always authentic and real. In fact, genuine love is practical, it is tangible, and it's significant. And all that is applicable to what he's saying here. But notice it does not say, love all with sincerity and emotion. Because love isn't always an emotion. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that, but love is sometimes an emotion, but it is always a choice. Love is always a choice. And so this is the foundation with which we're going to begin to build then where we're going. We are to love everyone with sincerity and devotion. Okay, so what's that look like? Well, Paul jumps around a little bit in this passage, and, and so will we to gather his, his thoughts together. But he says this, live in harmony with one another. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. So why would he tell us to live in harmony with one another? Could it be that we don't always live in harmony with one another? Do you realize that there are certain personalities you will naturally struggle to live in harmony with? There are people who are just profoundly different from you and me. What's wrong with those people? No, they just are, and we're going to struggle to live in harmony with them. Now, you overlay that with communication challenges, which happen in every relationship to some degree, and then you overlay that with maybe some history between you and that person, and then you overlay that with the selfishness and sinfulness that resides in all of us apart from Jesus Christ, and then you begin to wonder, does anyone live in harmony with someone else? 
I mean, this feels like a pretty big ask. In fact, it feels kind of impossible. So let's go there. Who is that impossible person for you? Who is the mic in your life? Now, don't answer this, okay? Because we don't want to hurt feelings here, but think about it. Are you married to them? Maybe you're no longer married to them, but you still have to interact with them. Maybe you're secretly hoping they won't be able to make it next week for Thanksgiving or even Christmas. Or maybe you get to see them when you go to work or college tomorrow or back to class. We can all fill in the blank with someone, I would bet. So how do you live in harmony with someone like that? Well, something that to me is very empowering and very focusing and very helpful with what we're seeing here is this little statement, as far as it depends on you. Because the reality is you don't have control over someone else. You don't but you do have control over you. You are responsible for your choices, your actions, your behavior, your thinking, your motives. And so to me, this is so profoundly graceful and giving for Paul to point out this relational reality that we love everyone to the best of our ability. We do, this isn't a get-out-of-jail card to not work at it. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. It's saying, you and I, we need to do our part, but we don't have any control over how that other person responds to you. Because what we're talking about here, this can be real complicated. Things were very complicated with Mike. How do you love someone who has it out for you, who considers you to be their enemy, who tries to make your life miserable, who goes out of their way to make your life difficult? How do you love someone like that to the best of your ability? Pretty tough. Very challenging. Which takes us to the next thing he says in this passage. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These, this word, these words, low position, can also be translated menial tasks. So let's think about this for a minute. I recently read an article about a Fortune 500 CEO who was highly regarded as a leader, not just because he was leading this incredibly profitable, successful company, but because he did things like he knew the name of the janitor who he saw every day. So he saw this man every day and he knew his name. And why is that noteworthy? He saw him every day. Because in the natural bent of our thinking, in a world that constantly makes valuations and devaluations and divides us into us and them, a CEO presumably is way too important to be spending any time or talking with someone who is a janitor and does menial, as we would say, tasks. Way too important or too proud Because let's think about our interactions together. When you meet someone, 
and you're exchanging pleasantries and maybe you're getting to spend a little more time with them, you ask, what do you do, right? Now, what we do is a part of our identity. There's no escaping that. And that's fine in its place, but how often do we size people up? Do we categorize and value and, in fairness, devalue people based on what they do? Is that our deepest identity? Our most important one? What we do? And now you begin to see where this can go. And there's lots of application to this to this reality that Paul's calling us to and God's word is calling us to. But to live like this takes humility and it takes purpose. It doesn't just happen. And one of the things that I so value about our younger generations, our millennials and our Gen Z, is inclusion is a really important value to them as a generation. They, they get it. And I, I think there's something to be learned there. I think there's a lot of value to that for sure. But this begins to move on into what I think is really the capstone verse and idea of this passage. So let's go to it. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And then he says, do not repay anyone for evil for evil. And then he says this, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, and he lifts this out of the Old Testament, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he reaches back to the Old Testament again to Proverbs 25 and says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then, and then he ends with this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that does not mean. That does not mean that when we're confronted with evil, we ignore it, we placate it, we accommodate it. This is not about being passive. On the other hand, this is not about being reactive because when we are wronged, when someone legitimately hurts us, what is our first response and our natural response, natural response usually? Come right back at them. So this isn't about reacting either. When I was an RA and a hall director, we were endlessly trained to understand the difference between the two of these, ironically, and to respond accordingly. Because we were told, and it was true from the very get-go, you are going to be put in situations where you do not know what to do. You're going to be confronted with complexities and relational challenges. You're going to have a residence hall that's pretty much entirely drunk. And you're not going to know what to do with what you're going to confront. It is not an option for you to do nothing. It is not an option for you to react. You are to exercise restraint and then you are to respond. And you are to respond with purpose. And that is exactly what God's word is calling us to hear. Don't ignore evil. Don't placate it. Don't accommodate it. Don't compromise. Don't negotiate with it. But don't react to it either. And take revenge or retaliate or strike back, instead overcome it. This is a military word. This is an incredibly aggressive word. This is about defeating an enemy. Now think about how counterintuitive that is. When confronted with evil, we are to defeat it. Okay, how does that work? He tells us. 
He tells us in this very passage, at least in part. He says this, and he says it twice in case we missed it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What does it mean to bless someone who has wronged you? Someone who has declared themselves to be your enemy. I think there's a lot of application to this, but one of the first places we can get some help is in Scripture. To go back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, where Jesus says, Love your enemies by praying for them. You want to bless your enemy? Pray for them. You want to know why, in part? Because it's awfully difficult to consistently hate someone for the long haul who you consistently pray for. God bless that idiot. Okay. (laughs) I would not encourage you to stay there, but if that's where you need to start, but you get it, right? You want to bless your enemies? You want to bless the person who has it out for you? Don't accommodate them. Don't passively accept it. Overcome them by beginning to pray for them. For God to work in their life. And by the way, when it says don't curse here, it's not talking about swearing. It's not saying, yeah, don't blankety-blank that, blankety-blank. Okay, that's probably not a good idea anyway. It isn't. But that's not what this is saying. To curse someone is to hurt or harm them. That's what this means, is don't retaliate, don't react, don't go after them because of this next one. As if it wasn't difficult already. It's about to get a little bit harder. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We're called to forgive those who wrong us, and let's talk about the dynamics of this. This isn't just talking about what we do outwardly. It's talking about just as much what we do inwardly. Because there are a number of us without knowing it who practice what I would call psychological voodoo. And that is we think of this person and just like a a voodoo doll that you were trying to poke pins into to hurt somebody, we poke holes into that person who has wronged us. Oh, we don't do anything outwardly. But inwardly, we're thinking, I hope they get theirs. We secretly cheer when something happens to them that isn't good. We think all sorts of stuff. We may not be retaliating on the outside, but we actually are on the inside. This is talking about that too. And you and I would reasonably say, why in the world should I forgive them? Do you you know what they did to me? Do you know how they wronged me? Why should I forgive them? Which is a reasonable, necessary question you have to ask because of the answer. Why do we forgive other people? People who don't deserve it? Because God first has forgiven you and me. What does Colossians 3 say? Forgive as... The Lord has forgiven you. I would submit to you, my friends, that if you truly understand and have received God's forgiveness, you know how to forgive other people because you have been forgiven. You know what it's like to be forgiven when you don't deserve it. Therefore, you can forgive other people who don't deserve it because you've been there. You get it. Now, some of you, again, might say, well, I don't feel like it. 
I don't feel like forgiving. Well, please understand, there are layers to this. This is not a sermon on forgiveness because we probably need a whole sermon just for starters to cover all the angles with this. But here's the reality. At some point, if you're waiting until you feel like forgiving someone, you may never get to the act of forgiving them. Because forgiveness is like love. Sometimes an emotion, always a choice. It is a choice. My friends, I have someone who wronged me in that same era of college, like 30 years ago now. I'm only 25. I'll let you figure out the math. But they wronged me. And I have never, ever, even to this day, felt like forgiving them. I still don't. But I have. I forgave them years and years ago because I chose to. And sometimes the feelings will follow and sometimes they never do. But when I default back to that inward process of thinking all these things and beginning to get angry all over again and and indignant and resentful, I anchor myself to that choice I made years and years ago to forgive them and that's my get out of jail card. Oh yeah, I did forgive them. And even if I don't feel like it, I have. And I can move on. Now, not easy, but actually quite simple. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. In fact, he takes us a step further. He says, yeah, don't take revenge. As good as that may feel in the moment, as right as that may seem in the moment. In fact, he goes on to say this. He lifts this out of Proverbs 25, written about 1,500 years before this part of the Bible was written. And it's almost verbatim from Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll hear burning coals on his head. So if you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 25, it says the exact same thing without any explanation. So what does that mean? And scholars have wrestled with this. There are some who believe this is talking about judgment. That if you're kind to someone who wrongs you, and if they continue to persist in that wrong, then you're heaping judgment on them. They're going to get theirs. Now, in fairness, the reason God tells us, in part, not to take revenge, is because when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came to bear judgment, to take our sins, our brokenness upon himself on the cross in order to forgive us, in order to give us right relationship with God the Father through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, it was to bear judgment. But please hear this. When Jesus comes back tomorrow or 2,000 years down the road, when he comes back, it will be to bring judgment. You see, God eventually is going to set all wrongs right. That day is going to come for those who choose not to turn away from those wrongs to do what the Bible calls repent, and that's turn away from that junk and turn instead towards God. No one gets away with anything. God is going to set all wrongs right. I believe that this is not talking about judgment, in part because it's the majority view of the scholars who have wrestled with this, and I I think that is right. I don't think this is talking about judgment. I think it's talking about repentance. In my Bible, if I were to show it to you, you would see this quote written down by Abraham Lincoln, our former president. 
Do I not destroy my enemies by making them my friends? He was famous for that. And he wrote that after reading this very passage we're looking at here this morning. And I have written that quote into my Bible because that's what he was known for, was living out these very principles we're looking at. Now, on the surface, again, this sounds like one that's a little bit easier to get behind. I mean, hey, destroy my enemies, sign me up. Be happy to. But you don't destroy them by getting them back or retaliating or making sure they get theirs. No, 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 it's the exact opposite. You destroy them by loving them and quite possibly leading them towards repentance and them becoming your friend. It's pretty remarkable what this is saying here. And just so we're on the same page, for those of you who are wrestling with, I don't know I can do that, yeah, you can. Because of how this passage started, remember when Paul opens this passage, he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, mercy, not getting something that you deserve. Okay, so Jay, did God forgive you when you least deserved it? Yep, then you can too. Oh, yeah, I guess I can. Because I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, because I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, I actually can live like this. Because in Romans chapter five, verse eight, earlier in this very book, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was never my enemy, but I started out as his, and so do you, apart from Jesus Christ. And he loves and forgives you anyway. The question is, will you respond and receive that into your life? And if you have, you can do this. You can live out these realities that we're talking about here. And I know that some of you are not convinced. I just know in a gathering this size, or for those who are listening online in our online community, there are some who are saying, oh, look at the cute pastor. Well, maybe not cute, nice. Look at the nice pastor. What a, what a nice allegory. What, what a really nice story. What a really nice false reality, created reality you live in. You see, my friend, I'm going to go out from this place, or I'm going to go after I turn off this podcast and do real life with the people in my life who have it out for me, who have wronged me, who are out to get me, who have it out for me, and there's no way this is going to work with them. So that's a nice message, Pastor. Too bad it's not realistic. And I am passionate about this because I've seen it work. Because you need to hear the rest of the story with Mike. You see, one day, about mid-year, I was walking past Mike's room, which I always did with fear and trepidation, hoping he wouldn't see me. And his door was open, and I walked by him, and he's sitting on his bed with books all around him. And I knew that we had the same class. We didn't attend the same class time, but I knew he was taking that class too. And he looked upset, and so the Spirit seemed to tell me, yeah, you need to not walk by. You actually need to steer into this one. Um, yeah, no, God, I'm pretty busy. No, you're not. All right. So I said, Mike, are you all right? He said, what do you care? And I said, well, I actually do. That's why I asked. What's going on? I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Hey, those look like the books from our class. Is that what you're upset about? Well, yeah. 
can I help? No. Okay, but can we talk about it? Nah, okay. So I go into his room, we begin to talk, and he does need help with the class, and I'm able to help him. And from there, things begin to thaw a little bit with him. By no means were things all better. It was still a difficult relationship, but it began to thaw and began to progress, and we had more interactions, and I tried to be deliberate in talking with him and engaging with him, and it got to the point where he became downright friendly. And then it got to the point where he knew that I was a Jesus follower and we had a, a vibrant college ministry. And I said, hey, you want to come to our, our, our campus ministry? And he said, yeah, I'll go. And he went for a season. He said, you know, I'm not into this Jesus stuff, but this is cool. I mean, people are, people are great and I enjoy it, but you know, the Jesus stuff, not really there. And then we lost contact, got into our senior year, and um, I left Res Life staff and, and being a hall director because I really wanted to focus that final year on my academics and actually graduate. So um, we parted ways. I was living in another residence hall. And then one day, about mid-year, I hear this knock on my door, and it's Mike. And he comes in, he sits down, and he says, yeah, I need to talk to you about that Jesus thing. Okay. Yeah, I, I need that Jesus thing. Okay, Mike, let's, let's get on the same page here. Jesus isn't a thing, right? So what are you asking for? I, I want that. I, I want Jesus. We can do that. So right then and there, he prays to receive Christ. And for the next six months, I have a follow-up Bible study very similar to what we'll teach you to do at our discipleship seminar next weekend with Mike teaching him how to get to know this God who loves him, who's forgiven him, and who is now progressively changing his life. Now, in fairness, I've had those kinds of experiences twice in my life. Mike's one of those. Does it always turn out that way? No. In fairness, probably most of the time not. But then I was struck with this reality last night, and as we prepare to worship here, I'm gonna ask our worship team to come on up, and we'll engage in music worship again in just a minute, but... We don't change anybody. I didn't change Mike. The Spirit of God did. Now, in fairness, I did my part. This was when I first read this very passage we're studying was in college during this season of my life and I began to try to live this out. And the Spirit of God changed Mike's life. And yes, it doesn't always happen that way. But the Spirit seemed to remind me last night, even if you don't overcome the evil in the other person by what you say and do, by living this way, maybe the point isn't necessarily to change the other person. Maybe the point is to change you. Maybe at least half the equation is overcoming the evil in your heart, not just theirs. And so really, the question that's before all of us this morning is this. Will you believe? Will you live this way and choose to trust God for the results? That's the real question. And so, as we sing this next song, if you need to just look at the words, listen to the words, then do that.
But don't just mindlessly sing this or passively watch this. You use this as an opportunity to say, I believe. God, I believe you can do this. That you can overcome evil with good through me. So let me pray his blessing over us as we do that. Lord, I do ask that as we sing this next song about believing and really trusting you, that we would take that to heart. That we wouldn't just say these words we believe, we would actually mean them and trust you for the results. Thank you, God, that we can love others because you have first loved us. Thank you that we can forgive others as hard as that is at times because you have first forgiven us. Thank you, God, that in view of your mercy towards us, we can live this way because you give us the power to do it. So now, would we believe it? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And I hope you believe what we just sang. But this can be difficult. This is not easy. This is some of the emotional heavy lifting in relationships that we all have to do at some point. And it can be complicated and difficult. And that's why we have each other. That's why we do this in community. And so I want to encourage you. We have prayer teams off to the sides here. Please allow them the privilege of praying with you about anything, but especially if it pertains to what we talked about here this morning. I would love to talk with you, but I just, I want to encourage you one last time that you can do this, that you can live this way. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 reminds us of this reality. Listen to this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. When you walk out those doors into real life, as if this wasn't, but when you walk out into what you might think is real life, you don't go alone. The spirit of Jesus Christ, the power to live this way goes with you if you know him. And if you don't or if you're wondering, would you please talk with one of us? Because you have the most important decision in front of you to make, and that is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him as your God. We would love to help you do that. But let me pray his blessing over all of us as we prepare to go from here. God, thank you that you give us the encouragement, the equipping, the practical tools we need that through the power of your spirit to go live this way now. And if we were to live this way consistently as your church, as your bride, what a distinctive life we would live. I think of everyone who is here, everyone who will be listening in our online community, the spheres of influence that we all have across this community in this city. So help us to live like this and to believe you, to take you at your word, to trust you, that you will work as we trust and follow you. And so we do that in Jesus' name together. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So go and live for him. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.